Welcome to the Profitable Farmer Podcast, where it's all about increasing the profitability of your farm by working smarter, not harder. G'day, and once again, welcome to Profitable Farmer. In this webinar, I'm delighted to call on and speak with a great mate of mine who finds himself in Tokyo amidst COVID-19 as an elite trainer to the Rico Black Rams, Japanese top rugby team. Ricky Dummigan may be known to some of you, but he's a wonderful bloke who has had an extensive career already in the military and now in rugby. Um, he's run his own executive development and uh, coaching company in Sydney. And um, I'm delighted to invite Ricky to join us. We've got so much to learn from Ricky's um, experience in high achievement, in leadership, both in military and business and sport. And um, look forward to sharing some of those learnings with you. So, Ricky, welcome to Profitable Farmer. Thank you, mate. Thank you so much for having me on board. Look forward to the chat. So, just to kick us off, you find yourself in Tokyo. I understand the population of Tokyo is something like the population of Australia. How has um, a small town country boy from Australia handled COVID nineteen in Tokyo? Yeah, it's been a it's been a pretty crazy time, hasn't it, worldwide? But um, uh, news for us came. Oh, it's almost March. Back to March now. Um, we were in competition here playing. Um, the girls' school had just started uh, online, so they we'd had a two-week period where we were, we were sort of unknown what was happening. And then, mate, yeah, we find ourselves three months of isolation pretty much. So, um, yeah, between many Zoom lessons for the girls for online and... Uh, all being confined in our small little Japanese house here that um, was just, I think, getting back to routine and structure was a big thing for us um, and creating some discipline around that. So, yeah, getting up of the morning and doing some exercise, making sure everyone had a routine and uh, getting through that probably, well, it's nice now because the girls have come into summer holidays so, um, and the restrictions have all been lifted here. So we've actually starting to warm up, so time to get out and, and explore a few more things of Japan we haven't seen. Thanks, Ricky. What are some silver linings for you as a family on the other side of COVID-19? Has, it, has there been some good things to come from it? Yes, yeah, certainly. Mate, I think having more time together has been super. and uh, Being able to really support the girls in their school, um, difficult to... Um, and Steph works full-time at the school now too, so she was online with her classes. Um, yeah, so, mate, I really enjoyed that, actually. I enjoyed um, just being here as a support element for them and didn't really have to do... You know, I, I did a little bit of planning for our next season that's coming up. and <clears throat> uh, But, yeah, no, just being together was, was super. Um, and I say that honestly, but, um, but obviously there were some difficult times, but... Um, yeah, we we just really enjoyed being together and uh, learned how to be aware of everyone's space and everyone needs their own time sometimes and uh, and 
so yeah, no, it was it was great. It was really good just for that Hackmate family time, which is so important. Yeah, I agree, Ricky. I think for us it's um been wonderful to have <clears throat> extra time morning and afternoon and to be more actively involved in our kids' development. Um, to have them on the farm here and to have them more actively engaged in the farm has been fantastic. And so it's nice to hear how that's played out for you in a very different environment. But um yeah, I think there's some lessons like that all around the world for a lot of us about just how to slow down and really appreciate the finer things and perhaps the, the simpler things in life. Yeah, correct. And mate, yeah, we did that too. You know, we had to we had to allow certain screen time, family time, like playing board games, card games. You know, being creative, um, getting outside. And we've got a small little backyard here, which we're quite fortunate. So, you know, we've got. Tomatoes and lettuces growing, and so yeah, getting out and doing a few little different things that we probably normally do together as a group. Perfect, Ricky. I first met you um, in Wagga when you were a development officer for Brumbies Rugby. Mm. Um, then you moved to Melbourne Rebels, where you're the strength and conditioning officer or the fitness conditioning officer for the uh, Melbourne Rebels and now you find yourself leading as a skills and development coach to the elite rugby team in Japan the Rico Rams how's your role now mate how do you mind just sharing and describing your role and your responsibility to the Rico Rams and also what's it like coaching and leading a Japanese team, perhaps relative to an Australian team. Yeah, um, well, mate, the role for me. So, yeah, basically, I'm in charge of all the skills. Um, so, you know, catch, pass, tackle, kicking. Um, it's, a, it's a big, it's a big bubble, and there's so many different skills in in that to cover. Um, and then the other aspect of that with the development side is a program that was started running. Uh, it's quite different up here. We have a we have a big squad, so it's not like Super Rugby squads in Australia, uh, where you've got 25, 30 players um, or thirty five. We um, we've got fifty five up here. Um, so the company boys. Uh, so some of the boys work for the company, work for Rico, and some boys are just professional. Um, so the development program we've created for that is all of our young professionals and company boys for their first three years that they come to Rico Rugby, uh, we've created an off-field program for them. So we look at things like characteristics of high-performing teams, uh, effective communication. Um, we're, we're doing some uh, goal setting, a little bit of game analysis in that, but it's more off-field development uh, for those younger guys. So. It's been it's been a wonderful challenge, and you know, Japanese culture is just totally different to us. Um, there's lots of foreign coaches up here that they they bring in, uh, I suppose, for expertise. Um, but yeah, the the language barrier is is obviously quite difficult. Uh, we're we're really fortunate we have translators with us all the time. But there's times you know where um, because of our large group of in the squad, we might have 30 guys on the field. The remainder might be with me doing a skill set. Um, but the two translators are out on the field with the uh, with the other two coaches running 
the attack and defence, and so I'm on my own. So you, I've had to, you've had to learn pretty quickly. It's been almost jump in the deep end and and uh, learn to swim. So uh, early on, uh, we get one Japanese lesson a week when we first came. Uh, but after our first season, I stayed up here because the girls are at international school. So while we're on the break, they're in their schooling period. So I thought, right, I'll condense my 40 Japanese lessons into into eight weeks. I'll just go every day uh, for the eight weeks. So it was, was probably the best thing I did because really fully immersed in it and then um, still doing a little bit of work with the company boys, but the translators were on, on their holidays as well. So, <laughs> so, you know, if they're running off doing something in a different direction, I had to blow a whistle to come back and go, right, what have I said or... But uh, yeah, understanding their culture as well, they're very, very, very respectful. Um, you know, well disciplined. In fact, you almost have to try and teach them to switch off sometimes. Um, and that's been a big challenge with the young guys coming through as well. Uh, their mindset is almost more is better. Whereas sometimes, yes, that, that can be. Are positive, but then there's also we've got to look at quality over quantity. So it's a ever evolving, uh, uh, you know, giving them tools in their toolkit to be able to do that, mate. Uh, they come out of university into our program, and you know, this, some of the stories you hear from the universities, the boys coming through, it's just like it's extremely hard to fathom. You know, you're training six nights a week for four hours, and you know, they go to bed at midnight and before they go to bed, they've got to eat. One of the uh, lads was telling me they had to eat so much rice to keep their body weight up and all this sort of stuff. It was just, you know, it's a bit of an old school mindset. But <clears throat> but I think there's there's some wonderful learnings in that as well, you know. And they do, they work hard, you know. Probably you, you respect that, you know. Company boys go to work through the day and then come to training in the afternoon and you've got, they've got to give 100% that you'd expect or you, you want them to give and our professional blokes might have had um, a gym in the morning you know they go home afternoon sleep or treatment and then they're out in the field but you know, boys are travelling in their suits jumping on a busy train sitting in the office meetings coming home and then uh, you're expecting them to do the same so yeah mate it's a it's a um, really, really different setup, but uh, it's been it's been enjoyable. What a wonderful experience, Ricky! Um, you've been up there a few years now. What really interests me in what you just said is um, that one of the things you've really focused on in that um, pursuit of high achievement is as much off the paddock, helping your players set goals. Um, and ex- explore different ways of and different mindsets, if you like, so that they can perform more effectively as a united team on the paddock. Would you mind explaining what it is that you're doing off uh, off um, off the paddock with them, um, yeah. to build them up as team contributors? Yeah, um, a big thing here, mate, is that it's almost a rank structure. Um, 
you know, the older players, if they tell the younger players to do something, they'll do it. Uh, certainly there was one thing we tried to change because we got we had a couple of young guys that came through who uh, almost a little bit westernized in their thought process of that going you know I just want to be a professional I want to play for Japan and you know uh, my level's up here and I expect you to be up here as well so they didn't really buy into the it's called Kenpai Senpai um, so that was that was really exciting because the off-field program that we sort of changed in with that and it's almost an emerging leaders program. Uh, these young guys coming through to say, well, you know, hey, lads, in 10 years' time, if you're still playing rugby here with Rico, with us, then um, you, you're the future captains, you're the future club captains, uh, decision makers in the leadership group. So we created a program that we've looked at things like what is goal setting, what's effective communication, what are the characteristics of a high-performing team, and... And it's been interesting to see what their thoughts are on that, where from what my thoughts have been, uh, you know, being in a high-performing team in the Army and, um, you know, playing rugby myself in, in winning teams, seeing winning cultures inside businesses that I've, that I've worked with uh, and the different thoughts that they have, what they thought considered to be high-performance. Um, yeah, so we've changed we've changed a little bit of their mindset in that, and and we're seeing that now, which is really great. Like after two years, it's been development with them. So I've got young guys who, you know, they really they really stand up, and if our standards aren't what we deem uh, to be acceptable out on field, then you know I've got some young guys asking questions of some of the senior players, and and that's been a real positive because it's I think it's brought us all closer together, uh, and certainly put us on a page where. Everyone's respected evenly. Everyone's got something to contribute to the group. And sometimes it's the youngest member that might have the best idea. And um, and then off field, with that we've we've uh, we've done some work out in the community with these guys. So um, involved. The parkrun started here. You know, parkrun in Australia is massive now. I think and. Um, Started here in Tokyo, and the first one was just on the river right next to our field. So we got the boys out in the Rico uh, gear and were stewards for the course, you know. And it was just in a bit of recognition they put up on Facebook. Thank you for the boys, and it's nice for our guys to go down. And, and in that, you know, we, we've got a, uh, some people coming to our games from the park run. Um, and uh, you know many uh, in foreigners that live in around our area as well. Uh, you know, we've created friends from that. So I, was, I see them at the games, and yeah, thanks for coming. And yeah, I'll see you at the park run on Saturday you know, before we travel to game or whatever. So yeah, there's been a real balance, and uh, we're, we're we're seeing some really good reward from that now. Wonderful, Ricky. Just. Reflecting on that insight for me and perhaps for the benefit of our farming families listening, I love that you think about your junior team members' 10-year journey and if they are to be with you or not, that you're thinking about how you can advance their career and build them up as individuals and help them pursue personal goals and high achievement and, and build out leadership skills whilst they're fulfilling their role with you. And so for our farming list, farming family listeners, just to check in, 
to what degree are you you doing that with your team members? You know, are you focusing on their goals, their aspirations, their development with you into a leadership role in your property long term? I think there's a lot to be learned. And as we go into this conversation, how to build high-performing teams, how to build people up to be at their best, how to help people be resilient um, are all really important leadership questions. And this is why I wanted to speak with Ricky, perhaps expanding this out a bit further, Ricky, you've trained perhaps from a fitness and leadership perspective elite rugby teams across Australia, rugby league and rugby union, um, now in Japan. Um, you've done similar with elite military teams across the Australian Army. Um, you've taken quite a few corporate executive teams into the bush, into the Blue Mountains, um, into remote locations for retreats. Um, two questions for you, mate. What are some of the common themes that you see when you look at those elite teams that truly set them apart um, in terms of high achievement? That's the first question. The second is... Um, how do you arrive to them and command respect? Because I see you do that incredibly well. You turn up to them and to these retreats and claim a leadership position and take these people on pretty profound journeys. I'm just keen for you to sort of share with us how you do that as a coach and um, how you turn up to lead some of these high-performing teams. So can you just explore that with me? Yeah, right. Good questions, mate. The, the first one, I think, um, created a workshop characteristic, six characteristics of high-performing teams. And for me, it's trust and respect, effective communication, honesty, and then review and develop. So trust... Uh, is earned, respect is earned, not given. You know, we, we delve into a lot of that. The communication stuff, I think, is a big thing within within teams. And this is this came, my concept came from a, from a military background, but once I started working in a corporate sector, um, I found that the, there was a real common theme with it. And it's almost like shortening the decision-making cycle. So for me, understanding what my boss and my boss's boss wants so it's almost two levels up. So they they are giving the communication tool and the the map of where the business wants to head, where the team wants to head, so that you, uh, as a decision maker on the field or out in the paddock, can make that decision with confidence, knowing that you're moving forward because you understand what your boss and your boss's boss wants. And. That in a team team aspect, that was that was massive for me in that in that corporate space. So did some work with Channel Seven, uh, and we found this to be things with sales. So guys out in the sales field who were just constantly going to businesses looking to go uh, get airtime. And so um, Ben Robert Smith, who the VC winner, uh, I, played, I was fortunate. I played rugby with Ben or we in the army and. Um, he was the head of Channel 7 in Queensland. And I said, so, mate, what, 
have you given your detail? Where's the map? Where do you want to head Channel 7 with it? So because we need to go regionally. We went all around Queensland uh, to do it. So I said, as soon as you tell me your plan, you understand, and then the bosses of each respective station, okay, cool, we need to get them on one page, and then your sales team, and so because they're the decision makers. They're out in the field. They're the ones that make the decision. That bottom line of the business is truly effective on these guys, and so if you're empowering them uh, with the right tools and the understanding to uh, of where the, where the direction of the company is going or the business is going or the team is going, then they are empowered to make the decision. And yeah, there's going to be times where some, sometimes people make bad decisions, but they've got to be learnings rather than than being uh, a dealing, a harsh dealing, you know, um, as long as they learn from it. And um, so, yeah, so that's a big thing. I think understanding where the direction of where you want to head and getting everyone on that same page and with that builds the trust and respect and and then you're constantly reviewing and developing where you want to head you know uh no plan survives a dynamic environment and so we've got to be able to be able to adapt and uh and and continually moving so ricky you speak really strongly to the importance of having a really clear common goal a really strong vision as a leader and then with that a really strong structure across your team so that people are clear on where they fit into that hierarchy that you spoke of, so that the people two levels down can um, be clear on what is expected of them two levels up, and then the communication framework that sits around that to support decision-making. It's so consistent, I guess, with the model that we're helping our farming clients build out for their farming teams, and it's really important. To hear that it's it's similar at the executive level in corporate, but that also it's consistent with I guess your learnings in elite sport as well. Yeah, absolutely, mate. And I think um, you know, even uh, I had six months off there at a stage. I was playing rugby down the south coast. I was milking cows actually, so I was probably lowest in the food chain <laughs> on quite a large uh, large family dairy um yeah so understanding what john wanted and um to him to empower me to be able to make those decisions early morning when you're on the own mate and getting done so i think yeah if you can take some takings out of that then uh you know in the agricultural space uh i think there's very similarities mate and uh principle wouldn't be absolutely apply don't they yeah um Terry context, Ricky, you've, um, I guess, started your career, as I understand, um, as a fitness and conditioning specialist to the Army and to elite special force teams within the Army. Are there common threads even there about how to structure teams and how to set up the communication frameworks as a leader to try and drive towards quick decision-making and High performance is it equally similar in the military? Totally, totally, mate. Um, yeah, I knew exactly uh, me as a as a corporal. I had a team underneath me. Uh, I knew what my sergeant and, and what my warrant officer all the way up to. I mean, 
the whole battalion knew uh, what the plan was, what the mission was, um, and it was just communicated top of the chain, bottom of the chain, and, and in reverse as well. So you knew your roles and responsibilities. Um, you knew exactly your left and right of arc. Uh, you knew um, actions on this happening. This is plan B. What are my roles and responsibilities in plan B? Actions that this happens in plan B. What are my roles and responsibilities in plan C? Um, yeah, and that is just rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed across, you know, a number of different elements. Uh, you know, we did it... Um, one of the ones instructing hand-to-hand -hand combat was you get people facing away. There's five different scenarios coming up. We've rehearsed all those scenarios for goodness knows how long. You've got your eyes closed and you're facing away. Turn and go. You don't know what scenario is coming at you, but you know there's one of five, but you've just rehearsed them. Uh, so, yeah, mate, there's, there's so, much, so much in it, I think, yeah. So interesting. Ricky, I wonder if tactical response has a place for our farming community given the season that's coming at them. Um, that's another <laughs> conversation perhaps. <laughs> Bringing all of that back to your role now leading a Japanese elite rugby team um, and having to do that through, I know you've got a really strong grasp on the language now, but having to do that at least to some degree through translators, can you just speak to the importance of accurate and clear communication and and how you go about um, as a leader to that team really um, working on the art of being clear and concise and strong in, in how you arrive to your people? Yeah, mate, that's probably be the biggest learning for me up here. Um, I think with the, the communication sometimes we'd say too much. So... Less is better here, uh, and because my instruction to players goes through the translator, translator through to the players, question asked, back through the translator to me. Um, certainly now you can pick up a few quick words. So you've, you, your time spent instructing rather than actually doing uh, is reduced. But it's a, I think for me, I've just been able to understand exactly what detail I'm after and so just use keywords uh, with that. Simplify your sentences a lot more. And the biggest thing I have to get used to actually because it's, it's back to front here. So we're English, we're subject, verb, object, subject, object, verb, I think, uh, in our structure of our sentence. It's the opposite here. So, um, you know, tomorrow we're going to go and do this. Um, we're going to do this tomorrow. That's at the end. So it's um, so, so it had to. You had to really be really um, respectful of how. And respectful is probably not the key word, but just understand uh, exactly what you wanted to say, and then how you were going to structure it. So you're constantly thinking for that, uh, for it to be just clear, so they get the detail out. I see your style of communication having changed, knowing you really well over the years. I see you communicating differently now a little to how you used to. When you arrive, let's hypothetically, you arrive back to an elite Australian rugby team, 
How would you communicate differently to them now, perhaps, compared to three years ago, Ricky? Three years ago, I was just passion, raw passion, (laughs) and probably missed detail. Um, So I was just speaking from the heart a lot of the times, and that was that. I think that's infectious. Um, But being able to do that now with clarity of detail has made it. I I think would make a huge difference. I actually look forward to that challenge of potentially going back and coaching in English, because I think this period here has really helped that um, and probably slowing down so that you do get the detail you can still put passion in your communication when you do that uh, rather than just being raw and you know out there with it um, so uh, yeah I would I'd slow down the detail you can still talk as I said with the passion to do it um, and understanding more detail around now where you want to head, exactly what you're after. Um, you know, and when I first started doing some of the corporate stuff, it was just raw for me because I, I hadn't really done it. I was just I was just speaking from experiences and of what I'd done. And almost actually I found it difficult because I used to think, well, why did people not get it? Why are you not getting that? Um, and for them it wasn't clear. You know, it wasn't, the detail wasn't there. Uh, they they understood the passion that you were sharing. And you know, I used to always tell this, my story on mindset, mate, which you know from my Kokoda run. And then you'd, you'd always get these looks of, oh, wow, that's amazing. I don't think I could ever do something like that. With, you know, now I could get people, you know, we could get a group and do that mm. because teach them, what the detail is and, and how we can do it. And, yeah. Thanks, Ricky. So perfect segue. Just to share a bit more of Ricky's story, um, over the years, Ricky has led team to over 20 teams of sport, military and corporate teams on Kokoda Trail. Um, more recently, he set himself the challenge, raising money for Mates for Mates, Fallen Soldiers. I think that's right, isn't it? Yeah, mate, yeah. Wounded, yep. injured and ill, yeah. Yeah. To run the Kokoda in less than 30 hours and manage to do it in 29. Now, the amazing thing about Ricky's story is that in doing that, and perhaps I think, Ricky, unbeknownst to you at the time, you gave yourself a heart attack doing it. Um, I'd like you to share the story of how you actually found out that that happened. But um, I'd love to just shift gears if we could, mate, and move the conversation more into um, mindset because to, to lead team, to over 20 teams on Kokoda, to make that commitment to run it in under 30 hours and achieve that, and we'll speak to some of the other personal and life challenges that you've completed since then. Um, I'm keen to explore with you what it takes to um, to get in the headspace to commit to that and to complete at it and to stick at it even when the chips are down. So with that, would you mind sharing your story about running Kokoda in, and setting that challenge and, and how that played out for you? Yeah. Um. Yeah, mate, so I, 
I'd finished playing rugby, still keeping relatively fit, and I didn't really have a goal, to tell you the truth, to work towards. Uh, I was inspired by a young fellow who had lost his legs in Afghanistan uh, to an IED uh, blast. He came through our doors at, at Mates to Mates. We were actually doing a, a, a big paddle, fundraising paddle from, paddled from Sydney to Brisbane. Uh, and I met Curtis. Uh, he had a goal and he wanted to go to the Paralympics. And he, he'd done a lot of paddling in his early days at high school in New Zealand before coming back to Australia. So I thought, oh, what can I do? And I thought, oh, how do I, what do I do, Kokoda? But I'll run it and I'll do it as a fundraiser so I can support him to send him to, to Rio and his family. And so then, mate, that was the goal. I had a goal and then it was, right, okay, I need to reverse engineer this process and map out the small steps that I need to go forward to achieve this. So I was, I was lucky that I'd, I'd trekked Kokoda a number of times. So uh, I knew the villages. I worked at a timeline roughly of where I wanted to be or where I had to be. At certain villages along the way, uh, I had a support from two of the local boys who had, who had done a lot of, been our porters on, on the majority of our treks, uh, helped me with food drops along the way, along the track. Um, so, yeah, there was a lot of planning <laughs> involved with it. And then on top of that, then obviously putting myself together a program for uh, to be able to physically do it. So, mate, I, I set off, uh, left at 5, I think it was 4.30 in the morning I started, and I went from Owers Corner back to Kokoda. Uh, yeah, so last minute, uh, I had a fellow who, um, who was really keen to join me, actually. Um, and so he said, mate, oh, I can contribute significantly with fundraising as well and and you know that enticement was great because we had a target uh 50,000 to raise and um so he joined me I was reluctant because then I thought and you know when I did the run uh in the middle of the night Fletch this fellow that came with me here he had a fall and hurt his back um so I had to carry him through to sunlight and he stayed at a village and I went through all these mixed emotions of going, that's all right, we've done it, we'll just do it anyway. You know, it's a, you know, we had to have a plan B, something that we can't deal with. And uh, so, so it's something that we can't uh, worry about because it's happened. We just need to continue on and we'll just finish it. Uh, I had a tracker um, going, which was um, a live Mountain Designs uh, sponsored. And so from a, um, a watch, which was, you could watch the live tracker to see where I was. And mate, came to the morning, I sat with Fletch, sun, sunlight was just coming up. And I think it was, four, it was about the same, 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning. Nine o'clock was the cutoff time that I had to be at Kokoda. And the village I was at, um, uh, normally it's about a day and a or, yeah, we do that village in two days, get to that village on day two if you're just doing a normal seven-day trek. And so I said to Fletch, mate, I've got to go. Uh, I've got to do this. Um, I'll go and I'll come back and get you when you're ready. Just walk, you know, with your time. And Ivan, a local porter boy, stayed with Fletch and walked with him. And I took off. 
and um, I did it in three, just over three hours from the village down to Kokoda. So it was a massive big descent, one river crossing, another massive big descent, and then I was sort of on the flat coming into Kokoda village. And Matt, I could take you and any farmer that wants to come, we'll organise a check, but uh, I could walk you to the exact spot that it happened. And my legs buckled underneath me. And uh, Matt, I lost control of bodily functions there for a little bit, but I could see the, the arches of Kokoda. And I and I kept going. Yeah, it's sort of um, it's not very nice, but yeah, things coming out both ends, <laughs> throwing up, and um, ended up finishing. And I just crashed at uh, at the arches. There was another trek trekking group starting actually, and I knew their doctor, uh, Doctor Tom, and he knew I was doing the doing the run. So he just did a little self-assessment on me, gave me some painkillers because I was my feet were killing me, and uh, uh, I sat down for about an hour. Uh, I was going to walk back and get Fletch, and then he was coming, um, so I was walking down. But uh, mate, the thing from from it was about two weeks later we went back with a men of league trip and just did a normal trek. So. Uh, we did it in eight days, and then I was fortunate enough. I was doing some work with Nova Radio in Brisbane, and uh, themselves with Channel Seven. We're doing a, or oh, Channel Nine actually. We're doing a fundraiser for Young Care, uh, and the the challenge was the New York Marathon. So I was training those guys, and we were going to push a young fellow in a wheelchair. Uh, for the duration of the marathon. And so they hit me up and said, Ricky, we uh, you know, a couple of radio jocks and, and uh, Andrew Lofthouse was the Channel 9 newsreader. Said, oh, mate, we, we need you to come and help us. We don't think we can do this. And so I ended up doing it with them. Um, and, you know, it's a, uh, another story, logistic reasons, mate, didn't work out. So I had to do the first half and then meet them before we could rotate through <laughs> on the wheelchair uh with with tim from from young care um i came back from that and um yeah i was just i was flat i was obviously fatigued uh a good friend of mine was the head of cardiology in the broad brisbane hospital he said ricky have you downloaded your detail on your um on your watch and everything from mountain design i said no i haven't and uh he went through my detail on um uh from the run on kikoda and He's a he's a keen adventure racer himself, so really fit chap and into that sort of sports science things as well. And uh, he said, "Holy heck, mate, you're lucky. You are so so lucky." Uh, he showed me the detail, and um, he said, "Mate, you've had a mild heart attack when you've done this." And I said, "What?" And he said, "Mate, your heart rate for the last part of it, my heart rate was sitting up in the high one eighties." And I'd held it for probably, I think it was the last 45 minutes or an hour, close to an hour. And then obviously when I had that little turn, it dropped. Like it dropped down to like about 50 or something. And then spikes of 50 and then bounced to 60. Boom, boom, boom. Then went back up to uh, back up to the high 170s again. Um, yeah, so 
mate, it was a that was it. Um, but I what a, the big learning from it, mate, was I trained myself so well mentally uh, that I was just there mentally. I'd, I'd, you know, I'd push myself above and beyond what my body could go. Um, it's not a good thing, obviously, but but it it, it does show. And to this day, and I and I tell the girls this all the time, um, your body can do so much more than what your head tells you, uh, and you can achieve so much more than what your head tells you. And so, um, yeah, this is a computer. You just got to reprogram it. And, um, when you can do that and tap into it, mate, we can all achieve some marvelous things. Thanks, Ricky. So well, it is an amazing story and, and I think irrespective of the fact that you by accident had that incident on Kokoda, you absolutely have an ability to um, prepare and pursue significant um, outcomes at an elite level, be it running Kokoda, be it taking that team for what I think was a 25-day ocean kayak from Sydney to Brisbane, again, um, with many fallen soldiers. Um, That New York marathon, pushing that young man for half of the marathon, you know, a matter of weeks after Kokoda. Um, My question to you is, is how do you train that? You've got an ability to to push through and to... um, really own the mental attitude needed to achieve at an elite level, what advice do you have for others that are training for something or needing to master that skill of of being able to push beyond their limit? But the big thing I did was that uh, I'd, actually, I'd learned to do some visualisation um, and I didn't realise how effective that was until, you know, after this all. So while I was doing no running, just training, you know, I'd do a long run. Uh, I'd worked, I'd, I'd learnt from, um, there's a fellow, Mark Devine, who's an ex-Navy SEAL, US Navy SEAL. Uh, he'd come from a yoga and um, martial arts background before joining the Navy SEALs. And then, obviously, those guys, uh, you know, were learning to breathe and control breathing underwater and, uh, you know, military snipers do the same thing. And so this box breathing method, and while I was inhaling over five and holding your breath for four to five seconds, you're, you're seeing your goal and your, your, whatever the goal was, the achievement, you know, so I was visualising running in at the ridge, one of the steepest ones, going, right, this is me and I'm, I'm thinking of it and I'm seeing it, these pictures in my head. And then as I exhale, you know, you would, you'd see yourself executing it and inhale and, you know, next, what was the next one? It was running, you know, cro- oh, crossing Brown River. You know, it was a river crossing and then the water's raging. So uh, Normally we we hook up a rope and to get people across on the rope, but obviously doing that on my own was I had to pick an entry point and, and an exit point to get out on. Um, so I was visualising myself doing all that while I'm breathing in and as I'm exhaling, 
seeing myself executing it. And I think when the time came to do it, I'd already been there. I'd already done this. So I was calm. I was in a calm state. Um, and even though I was working at a high threshold, my, my head state was calm. So my decision-making was clear uh, and I was able to execute. And, it, mate, I've continued that now. Um, even times when you know, being here coaching frustrated or when we first came, going to our admin for the banking and sorting our house and cars and things like that. And, uh, just going, right, I'm just going to remain calm here and breathe. It's all good. It's going to work out because we understand what we want to do or we need to do. Um, yeah, mate, I, I do it now all the time. Um, do it when I'm in the morning, get up in the morning and just breathe for a couple of minutes, work out what my what my goals are for today, what do I need to execute and see yourself doing them. And maybe that's helped me massively, massively. And I think for me it's given me real clarity in where I want to go now in life, things I want to do with the girls, the family, what we want to do. Um, and there's a lot into it. Um, you know, I was still reading a lot about that um, and researching stuff. Um, I'm not a, I'm not an expert in it, but um, but it, it, I, I, there's science around it that backs it up. It says it works, and um, yeah, and it's and it's not something new. It's actually been around for a long time, Hutch. Mm. And and so, mate. Yeah, all of, all of you guys out on the property and so forth, how, you know, I don't know, times when you're fencing or something, it's, you feel a bit ready to lash out because something's not going right, you know. Uh, take some time just to breathe, reset yourself. Um, yeah, and, and, and there's a calmness that comes over you when you do it. Yeah. Uh, I haven't gone full meditation. To um, sitting down with my legs crossed, uh, made it. Yeah, that's a lot in it, and I think you know everyone can benefit from it. Everyone, you're so accurate there, Ricky. There is no doubt that there's real science behind visualization now, and certainly, and mm-hmm. even for farming leaders. Um, it's probably not something that has been spoken about, but certainly within our community, um, visualisation and pursuit of that clarity is such a key to unlocking results and achievement both as, as a business owner and as a human. Um, so thank you for sharing that. You touched on morning rituals, Ricky. How important are they in pursuit of high performance, in your opinion? Uh, mate, that's huge for me. Discipline in the morning, uh, creating my morning routine. Yeah, that sets me up. Um, so I know Hutch, you and I have spoken a lot about this over the years, and um, mine's mine's changed, but certainly the the same elements are there. Um, there's exercise. Uh, there's a bit of learning time for me, uh, and there's just a bit of well, I do visualization. So, mate, mine is. 60 minutes, um, I punch out 20 minutes of high-intensity exercise in the morning now, um, do 20 minutes whether I do uh, listening to a podcast or just reading, 
20 minutes of, of um, writing down my, my daily routine, mate, uh, in terms of what needs to be done today, who needs me on my A game. Um, just a couple of questions that I ask myself that I, I write down. Um, you know, uh, one of them is if I was a high-performance coach, coaching myself, um, what would you be telling yourself? Um, I have the same answer for that every day, uh, but I still write it down. And it's um, and it's a thing that I uh, picked up from uh, a course that I was doing years ago and got told was hell on earth uh, would be meeting the person you could have been. I think some wise man maybe on the end of the screen might have actually told me. Actually, I can't remember where we got it from, but you and I have spoken about it, obviously. And I think of that all the time. Mm. So I thought, oh, jeez, you know, imagine, imagine meeting with someone that you go, wow, that was meant to be me. Why didn't I push that a little bit hard or why did I give up, you know? So, yeah, that's a driver for me, mate, big. You know, and, and during the you know, lockdown period, we, that was big. We did that with the girls. So it was like, you know, kids had to log online in your virtual classroom at nine o'clock, uh, log on the teacher. And uh, it was like, right, so before then, what do we need to do? So get up, let's go. We're up, we're going to go and do morning exercise. Um, have breakfast together. Let's just sit down and read a book, something totally different, not a, not something school involved. Go and read like, a, a, you know, the kids are into the Japanese animation is big up here, Japanese comic books and so forth. Uh, go and do that and then then we set up for the day and uh, log off at the end of the day was family time cool go down to the river or uh, do those things so yeah mate for me that morning routine is the platform and it's the platform to launch yourself from every day and I um, I think you've got to have that yeah there's got to be some form of exercise in it. There's got to be some form of self-time and a bit of learning. Thank you, mate. Hell on earth is meeting the person that you could have been. Mm. Really powerful statement. And um, thank you for reminding me of that. Um, <laughs> I remember here, 10 years ago from one of my mentors, Keith Cunningham, and um, I do really appreciate you reminding me of that. list, uh, Rob, Ricky, it's just fantastic. So, mate, just, just in finishing, and there's other parts to your career that we haven't even touched on. Um, playing the Bugle at the MCG and at Canberra on Anzac Day and in so many other locations. I was lucky enough to um, have my family um, only, what, four weeks ago now, Westy, dial into a Zoom call where, West, uh, where Ricky was belting out the last post um, standing on the Tokyo River with his family. It was mm. beautiful. So, Ricky, there's so many other achievements that no doubt you must be very proud of. In all that you have achieved, mate, what is what are you most proud of when you look back at Kokoda, Ooh. kayaking, um, your musical career, your um, martial arts and elite special forces career and now coaching rugby? What are you most proud of? 
Wow, Matt, that's a tough question. It's a good question. <clears throat> I probably look at it and think that, oh, mate, I'm I'm proud that I've been able to do a lot of things, um, and they've all been enjoyable. Um, up until this time, mate, I, I went with the flow. Uh, opportunities presented themselves, and I just grabbed them. Um, and delved into them with a little bit of unknown, uh, but remained disciplined to see them out, you know. Um, and that's given me clarity, I think, for what I really want to achieve now and where I want to go. Um, what am I most proud of? It's a, having no regrets, mate. No regrets in just doing it. Nice. So there's been some tough ones. Um, you know, there were some really robust times as well. So, but learned the heat from them to come out better. Having no regrets and just chasing it. Yeah, definitely. Cool. So two final questions, Ricky. Mate, um, I'm going to start asking these of all my interviewees on this podcast just in finishing. My first one's, What's the best piece of advice that you've been given by a mentor? Hmm. Not a mentor as such, but one thing that resonated with me uh, ever since I was really young, mate, I, Dad used to always take me to the rugby and I had an autograph book. I used to collect autographs and I had some, I had some names, like big names, people like from sporting personnel to... Mainly sports people, but um, Alan Jones um, had fin- just finished coaching the Wallabies, I think it was during that time. Anyway, dad, dad had, uh, my dad had, had been taught by him at Grammar uh, up in Toowoomba. Anyway, he knew dad well and dad had done some other things with him. He wrote me an autograph. I'll never forget, it said, Dear Ricky, keep aiming for the top and never give up. Regards, Alan Jones. I had to get Dad to explain it to me exactly. Um, yeah. I might have kept that. <laughs> yeah. I just thought that really, was really cool. Keep aiming for the top and never give up. For me, I, I don't know what the top is yet, but I know that that's just, there's a number of steps for me to where I want to go. Um, yeah. Let's keep chasing, never give up. <laughs> nice. Thanks, Ricky. So finally, what advice would you give to a younger Ricky? What would you say to someone? What would you say to yourself if you happened to run into you 20 years ago? <laughs> uh, mate, it was probably be slow down and enjoy the moment. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was pretty busy. <laughs> busy and uh, chaotic. Yeah, slow down and enjoy the moment. Stay in the moment and enjoy the now. Definitely. Because uh, look back on time service, mate. I had some cracking times with many things, whether it's sporting or music, um, whatever it be. But yeah, just really enjoy those because, uh, you know, it's a, they were a privilege. A real privilege. So yeah, enjoy the moments. 
Ricky, we've covered a lot of territory in this conversation and I always really enjoy catching up with you. Um, my sincere thanks for your time. My pleasure, mate. Thank you so much. And I hope it's a benefit for uh, all your academy members, mate, in the Farmer's Own Academy. Um, yeah, and mate, you're doing great things. So keep up the work, buddy. Wonderful to chat. Thank you, mate. So perhaps all of us have sort of a few people in our lives that genuinely fire us better humans. And for me, Ricky's very much one of those. He's um, just achieved so much in his life already um, in so many areas and he does really represent what it is to pursue that high-performance mindset and to lead by example. Um, Such an impressive character with such an established career Um, and um, it's within that in mind that I hope that that is of real value to all of you. We've touched on what it is to support high-performing teams, um, the importance of communication and how to set challenges and and develop and establish that mindset of achievement and right through to morning rituals and the importance of visualisation. So we've just covered such an important range of topics. Again, Ricky, thank you so much for your time and to all our listeners out there, thank you. And we'll look forward to checking in with you again in coming weeks. Take care and bye for now.